Greetings. I'm Steve Van Cor. This, as you know, is the FCCMA podcast, a service produced by and for the Florida City and County Management Association. I'm your host. In each episode, we interview a city or a county leader who's in a position to share interesting and useful insights into the operations of local government right here in the Sunshine State. I have to disclose up front that I've worked with and really like our next guest, uh, Russ Blackburn, um, a true consummate professional, has been in the business. You ready for this, you youngins? 45 years. Uh, and Russ, you don't look a day over 50, so I got to presume you started when you were really young. Eleven. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a few gray hairs, as do I. Uh, so Russ, before what I want to I want to get into two areas and I want to jump right in because we have a lot of ground to cover. You and I, you you'd you brought on our firm to help with kind of an emergency project. We discovered kind of late that uh, you guys had been offering tax abatements to businesses to relocate to the city of Port St. Lucie, where you're the city manager and have been for 10 years. And we said you called me up and said, Steve, we've We've ours has expired. We got to put this on a ballot in a special election because a lot of folks deal with this tax abatement. Russ, how did we get to that point? So, so first, I've been with Port St. Lucie for five years. Oh, five years. Uh, okay, thanks. But uh, I don't want anybody to think, well, he was working for us. Another point. Uh, so, the legislature authorizes tax abatement as almost the only tool we really have in local government to help us create higher paying jobs and bring new businesses or substantial expansions to our communities. So they authorize it, but they snuck in this little provision around 2011 or so or 10, that that the authorizations first have to be approved by referendum and second, they expire in 10 years. So Port St. Lucie in, our, our county, which is St. Lucie County, the county was on one, uh, one timeline for their tax abatement and recognized that theirs were, was expiring because we've had a lot of turnover. Nobody was here when our referendum was, was adopted back in 11. And as such, we weren't tracking that expiration date. Uh, as we started talking about it, I just kind of randomly requested to one of our staff members, let's go see when ours expires. And lo and behold, it does, it did expire uh, at the end of 2020. And we are very active in economic development, have a lot of really great transactions happening right now. And some of them were dependent on having tax abatement as one of the keys for their decision to locate in Port St. Lucie. So for every city and county in the state that has the ability to do tax abatement authorized by your referendum, an important thing is go back and check when does your authority, when does it sunset? And then for us, normally we're pretty good planners we weren't on this issue, but we would normally look back, you know, a year and a half or two years and start developing our strategy for the next 10 years. So, yeah, because we had been talking with the county because they theirs is getting ready to expire. 
and we were going to travel together on the ballot. So there would be back to back for the citizens of the county. They would see two if they also lived in Port St. Lucie. Everybody else would see one. And you call and say, oh, my gosh, we're we're in the middle of negotiating these things. And so we had a I jokingly call it a controlled crash of a campaign because <laughs> we had ballots getting ready to go out in 30 days. And uh, and one of the important points here, I think it cannot be lost uh, on our listeners is you already had two things in place that I thought were, well, really three things, a good track record of using this tax abatement to bring jobs to Port St. Lucie. And Port St. Lucie has been a jobs generating machine. You guys have done a phenomenal job of bringing not just, you know, another Wawa to the area, but you know, FedEx distribution centers. Uh, I know you had a, a roofing company, I think it was. But the the two other things you had, you already had a spectacularly uh, energized and focused staff in place. And I want to talk about that in a second, but also strong relationships with the business community. There wasn't, we see it a lot of times in, in, in cities, an adversarial relationship with business. Uh, you know, they, they're mad about permitting fees, they're mad about permits, they're mad about you know, allowances and, and non-allowances. And there seems to be, hey, we want to grow jobs. And the city's saying no. But you guys started the journey. I mean, it was like on day two, you had an alliance built. Let's talk about that that external alliance that you'd already built. What, where did that come from, Russ? Yeah, so so one of the most important things, and, and we, you, you always hear, be careful who you step on going up because you might need them as you're coming back down. And as a city, we've taken great pride in building our partnerships, communicating with our stakeholders in our community, recognizing that they have something very valid to say and contribute. And so that we have this emotional bank account and we're not always perfect. Sometimes we, we clash with each other a little bit, but for the most part, you know, we work well with the Chamber of Commerce. We work, work very well with the Builders Association, the Economic Development Council, uh, and the City of Port St. Lucie are just great partners. And so when we began this process, we thought about who are our stakeholders? Who are the folks who really benefit from all the city having this tool to help advance higher paying uh, jobs, new development within our community. And so we reached out very early to our chamber, our uh, Realtors Association, the, the Treasure Coast Builders Association, all our key stakeholders in how we grow our community. And you don't start that the day you decide to have a referendum. You should do that every day of the year and whenever there's friction, you have to remember there will be a time when you will need that association. It's the chamber, it's the realtors, and they'll need you. And so you need to be culturing those relationships all along. And you, you know, and I think the lesson there is you, when you called, you didn't have to introduce yourself, you already knew each other. And you had a positive relationship. Like you said, you had differences. They're saying, no, no, we're not going to grant you that variance because that's a holding bonnet dra drains into the Indian River Lagoon. We're not going to give you that, but let's work together on this. And it wasn't your whole staff and the allies that I saw. There was It was a cooperative relationship. 
And now, obviously, for the tax abatement, um, the city wanted it. So they, like you said, it's one of the few economic tools you have in your tool chest, right? You have other tools, you know, the quality of life, the beautiful sunshine, you know, land, land opportunities, et cetera. But that's a big, powerful economic tool. But it wasn't like, hey, I got this big, powerful economic tool, therefore come to the table. This was, hey, we already have a relationship. We've already been working together. You knew them, they knew you. And you could see it on the calls. They knew your staff. They liked and trusted your staff. And your staff liked and trusted them. Even during the campaign, we had differences of opinion about the tightness of the message, the audiences, the overlapping of the mail. But we all worked through it. And it was no, it was the tension was isolated to the issue, not to the personalities. And you guys, it seemed, and I think the lesson here is this long tail of these relationships paid big dividends going into this referendum. It, it it did, uh, and you know we one of the things that that helped us, and, I, and we do it in almost every major issue that we deal with as a city is we created a core team early on of the folks who work in strategic planning, in communications, you know who on our team, including myself, I was part of those those meetings, but I was not the team leader. The team leader was our communications director and my director of strategic planning and initiatives. They were in charge. I was along for the ride. You know, I noticed that you were on almost every call, but said very little, Um, usually to compliment people, to thank them, to be appreciative and to kind of, you know, wrap it up. But the actual instructions came from your staff. Well, so the... The core team was very important, but we we also invited our stakeholders, our allies, to participate in that team, and we appreciated, you know, your service and helping to guide us, you know, through the various meetings that we had to get to, uh, having our message message ready and ready to actually send out and provide information to our community. But our you know, part of that developing the relationship with the allies in the community was invite them in. We didn't say, we're going to do our own thing and you go do your thing. We, I don't believe we would have been as successful. We, for every call, we invited That's true, you brought them in early. Yeah. We brought them on, brought them in as part of the team. You know, it was interesting because if you didn't know who the staff were, you didn't know who the allies were on these calls, you wouldn't be able to distinguish. We were all part of this team um, working towards a common goal. You know, I think it's important, Russ, to sidebar for a second, because in these initiatives, the city is allowed to and should, I would argue, educate the public. You know, you have an obligation to say, look, you're going to be voting on something and Here's what that means. The allies have a little more freedom in that they they are allowed to advocate and say, please vote yes. And so in the, in the, in the, in the bright line, and, and, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but I've heard it from many lawyers. The bright line is you can't spend tax dollars advocating, right? So your mayor, you, if you go to a town hall meeting, and they ask you, well, how do you feel? You, you can say, I'm voting yes. But when you're communicating with the public through paid means, you can't say vote yes, but you can inform. And you guys did a good job. But having those allies 
was vital to the success of this because not only did they, I think they ended up doing three pieces of mail yes. uh, total to the to the voting audience. And we coordinated with them on how and when to drop that. Uh, but they were able to say, please vote yes uh, through a, through the funding that they did on their own. So, so I think one of the interesting things is sometimes people, you know, we think of this restriction of advocating for a, a yes vote as a handcuff. And it certainly is one thing you can't do, but you can do so much in really using the various tools you already have as a city to help raise the awareness of the community. We talked about a, a poll early on. A poll raises the awareness. You start out by getting people to think about, you know, what, what's the city doing in economic development? And then, you know, we have a robust website. We thankfully have developed a great communications team. And we used it, we we had a web pages, multiple pages with videos of some of the successes in the past. We're not saying vote yes, we're saying this is what happened when this project received tax abatement. It's factual. And so we showed the new building coming out of the ground. We were able to use an insert in our utility bill just to say, are you aware there's a vote on, in this case, December 7th, 2021, about higher paying jobs for Port St. Lucie? So, you know, and, and so using all of the tools of the city from the electeds who go speak at, you know, homeowners association chamber meetings, blah, 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 blah. Uh, giving a PowerPoint presentation. I know you did several of those, the website, the utility inserts, a piece of direct mail. Uh, and most cities have some suite of communications. And what your team did, we all timed it around election day so that all of those uh, tools in your tool chest, as it were, were deployed around the same time. So we, we raised awareness right leading up to the December 7th election. You know, the, the one thing that I learned from you, Steve, as well as a previous experience that you were involved in on a uh, sales tax referendum is that elections have changed. You know, we do think about, oh, we got to get out and encourage everybody to go vote and get our message out on election day. Well, now with vote by mail, with early voting, there are very few people actually voting on election day. So when you develop your strategy, your your list of objectives and your timeline, it's pushed way back to when you need to have your tagline ready. Your your what is the, my message on a mailer? When, when do I send it? And in our case, we coordinated with the mailers that we were sending that were fact-based. Did you know there's a referendum on this day about this subject with our allies that were saying there is a referendum on this day and we recommend you vote yes. Well, it's so interesting. Coordinating all that was really critical. Yeah, we call it election day, but it's really election month because 28 to 35 days prior to election day, in this case, it was December 7th, 55 to 60% of the electorate is going to vote by mail. You know, so a majority of voters are going to get their ballot nearly a month out from election day. And then 
about 10 days out, you have early voting. Now, we had a kind of an odd thing, right, because we only had early voting in some precincts, uh, some areas, not right. others. Um, so you've got to manage, you know, the timing of that. So we split our mail. So we, you know, did one county, the city did one piece, and some of them was sent out to the people who were going to vote by mail. We held back the others to the other folks so they could get it in a timely manner. I want to go back on, on the poll because you guys um, you know, followed our lead on the polling was was smart in that the city did it. So it becomes a public record. And some people go, well, we, we're asking the voters, is this what you want? Are you OK with this? What percentage? And then what do you want? Why would you be more likely to be supportive of this? And what we heard from them, we worry about these tax abatement things. One, people going, wait a second, these are corporations, they should pay taxes. Okay, we didn't see any of that. Two, well, what about local businesses? And you guys had already set it up to say this is to lure new businesses for uh, you know good, high-paying jobs. We're not just going to let anybody take advantage of this, but also to help existing businesses in the community if they want to expand. This is a tool that they can avail themselves to uh, as well. And those things polled very, very well. In fact, for us, I got to tell you, I've probably done thousand polls. And I can't recall, we started out at 53, right. which made me a little nervous because these things tend to go down. Made me nervous um, too. <laughs> yeah, we were all a little, you know, because we got the counties coming up as well. We've got, you've got all these outstanding contracts, but we found such powerful messages that people knew that this is going to be used to bring high paying jobs to the community. They were like way on board. And so you ended up, we ended up with 59%. Yes. Yeah. So, by the way, congratulations. Um, so, other thing I wanted to talk to you about about this, Russ, was, you know, I've I've overlapped with your staff before, but I think this is important for other city managers to hear. What's your magic? Because your staff clearly love and respect you. They clearly love the city of Port St. Lucie, and it shows through every meeting that they love their jobs. Why do they love their jobs? Well, we we hope that we start always by getting the right person on the bus. So you had to hire people who are service oriented to begin with. It's really hard to teach. Uh, but then we model how important that is to really be committed to providing service to our community. And we reinforce it at every opportunity. Uh, our team on the tax abatement, you know, as, as you noted, you know, I set the team up helped identify who should be on there, but then identified we had two co-chairs, had co-chairs, and we asked them, take it away. You know, you develop the schedule, uh, determine how often we're going to meet. Uh, I was there as a resource if needed, uh, and certainly I care a lot, so you want to make sure people know you care. But you have to you have to give people room to grow and room. So you hire you hire people that are service oriented, have a servant's heart, and then you, the magic here is letting them serve, letting them Let, take the lead. Letting them so do the job. Yeah. Sarah and Kate can look back and go, yeah, I did that. Yes. Uh, that was mine. Do you? I mean, is that something you do in in all of? Is that how you manage all of your projects? We, we that is certainly how we try to manage every project. <laughs> yeah. Most of the time we succeed, but uh, well, the I'm challenge not. of delegating is 
is it really it's like being a parent is letting your kids skin their knee because you don't really learn until you skin your own knee. And uh, have you had that challenge where you, you, you've delegated this and then you see, oh, that's probably not what I would do, but I'm going to let them continue doing it that way? It's inevitable and every team is going to do that. You know, you, uh, I, I really do feel very strongly and committed to that for all of our issues, I'm trying to build a great team as an organization, but it's composed of many smaller teams. And so every one of those teams is going to go through a cycle where you give them their, their I like to describe it as I provide the picture frame. And within that picture frame, you, the team, are going to develop what the picture looks like. All I do is give you the picture frame. And so, you know, we, as importantly, see, we really have been very successful uh, and really getting good feedback uh, from our employees on that team-based approach, you know, recognizing that, you know, you're going to make some mistakes, might not be perfect, uh, might not be exactly what, whether it's the team leader or the manager of the council would do, but but when it's all over, they've all learned something. They've all grown and they're actually anxious for the next team to work on another issue. Well, I love that match because if you bring in somebody who's service or I want to help, I want to help my community. And you say, okay, you're going to be in charge of, you know, helping develop this new park. And I'm going to give you the latitude to find the vendors to go through the RFP process to build it and to help design it. And I'm going to watch and I'm going to be here for questions and resources, but then they they can satisfy that servant's heart, right? Because let's face it, in, in city government, you can't make millionaires out of people. They don't get a lot of public recognition for the work they do. In fact, We've learned from through this podcast, those in city government must be able and willing and, and want to do good things in the public, but with the caveat that you're not going to get recognized for it because I, that's for the electeds, right. right? You don't cut the ribbon, they do. <laughs> Let me ask you something. In, in building these teams and giving them independent authority and control of these projects, how far upstream do you take that? So... Do they present to the council? Let's just use my park example. Are they going to be the ones to present to the council or do you do that? Or do you? Uh, no, I, I do not make those presentations. I uh, ask the team leaders to make the presentations, uh, organize them, provide the information. Uh, our organization is really good at uh, sharing credit and recognizing when there are other departments, other teams help them achieve their objectives. And that's critically important, but also we're trying to build capacity. So if I make the presentations, I'm not building anybody's capacity. So I always uh, approach the issues that come to council is who's the subject matter expert? How do I help, help that person or team really understand how the council thinks and present the information to them based on what you've learned and how you believe that they would be learning as well. And so, you know, I don't make presentations, very few. Uh, I, even my, even my assistants don't make many presentations. We prepare our department directors, our divisions, our team leaders to make the presentations 
the the co-team leaders for the tax abatement referendum, they made the update presentations to the city council. How does the city council take that? Do they like that or is it they want to see? They, they like it. Now, the one thing I will tell you is they still want the manager to know everything. Yeah. That, and, and that's important. Uh, yeah, they don't want you to be putting your department directors, division directors, others up and or, or your team leaders. And then when they ask you a question, they still want you to know the answer as manager. And I think that's, that makes sense. So you're not, you're not, you know, that old expression in business, you're not working in the business, you're working on the business. It sounds like you, you, and, and as we saw in the tax abatement program that was so successful, you, you were there, you were present, you offered some commentary, but and almost as a peer. Now, obviously your staff didn't see you that way, but we, we had, you know, there was a lot of back and forth and there was very little micromanaging. No. Excellent. Excellent. And your, and your commission's been good with that. Yes, they are. So I want to do this in reverse a little bit. Tell us about your journey. How did you, how did you end up where you are today? So, so it's interesting, and I, and I don't want to go too long, but it starts with my grandmother. Uh, very involved in public service. You know, she was a poll worker for probably 40 years. Uh, when, I, uh, when I was getting out of my undergrad. What, what do you mean a poll worker? What does that mean? She, she worked in the polls. Uh, Helping, Voting polls? Helping count, count the ballots. Oh, wow. You know, Where? And in North Augusta, South Carolina. Okay. And so, you know, I was aware of public service as a young person. And so when I got out of college for my undergraduate degree, I happened to pass a billboard or bulletin board uh, with, a, with an MPA flyer on it. And MPAs weren't that popular at that time. I read it. And it sounded like something that might fit for my life and my ideals. Uh, I set my goal of being a city or a county manager. And, uh, of course, not How old were you at this time? I was uh, about 21. Wow. Yeah. So so you'd already had a college degree, and now you were you saw this for the MPA. You're yes, like, go that's that. correct. Yes. And so, uh, so uh, like a lot of young people, I, I saw myself being a city manager. I didn't realize that there were a number of steps that you had to go through to learn and to, to earn the right to be a city manager or county manager. And my own experience is if you don't go through those steps, you're unlikely to succeed as a manager. So I uh, got my, uh, I was a deputy and assistant county administrator, uh, assistant city manager, in uh, multiple, several communities. My first manager job was as the Martin County Administrator. I was there eight years and I became the Gainesville City Manager for 10 years and came to Port St. Lucie. And uh, it's been great because all the things that I did before really have given me the tools to help make a difference and be successful in Port St. Lucie. What's the difference between being a county well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to guess you're going to say not much, but being a county administrator versus a city manager. So it's a level of detail. Uh, and it's interesting because uh, I get that question a lot, having been both a county administrator and a city manager. The counties kind of function at a, at a little bit higher level. Neighborhoods don't matter that much. You know, you're, you're looking countywide. There's a whole bunch of neighborhoods. If one neighborhood's upset about something, it's not going to make 
the, not going to be the end of the world for the county commission or even the staff. At cities, we care about neighborhoods. That's the big difference is so your identity, the issues that you work on really are building one neighborhood at, at a time and helping those neighborhoods succeed. And is that because the neighborhoods tend to be located in municipalities and so that's more their jurisdiction and the county is more because it's obviously county-wide? I, th I think you have neighbors, certainly have neighborhoods in counties and cities right. and every, every neighborhood in a city is in the county. Right. But the, the difference is that the, it's the closeness, it's the proximity. So the neighborhood in a city is a pretty big deal you know, if you have a neighborhood with, you know, 2,000 residents, you know, they're going to have a voice in the city. And that voice sometimes can be, you know, a, more difficult to work with, or mm -hmm. you can really help get them engaged and help them to really help build the city. And that, that to me, that's the big difference. Certainly, you have constitutional officers in a county, don't have the like constitutional officers, but I would still say it's the neighborhoods and the attention to neighborhood issues that, that you have to worry about the county. Yeah, because the county, obviously, you got the sheriff, the jail, you got the tax collector, property appraiser, supervisor of elections, you know, all those clerk of the courts that you get your money and then you're, you're allocating to other departments that are separate, independent constitutional officers. You obviously don't get to manage how they run their operations. And when you get everything's left over, it's like, okay, roads. <laughs> yeah. And for cities, you know, we do a lot of linkage. So if you, what do you think, mean by that? well, if you think about the, you're trying to build neighborhoods and you're trying to build a great city. So you care that the roads connect through the neighborhood or to give act, easy access to the neighborhood. You care about code enforcement because you want that neighborhood to maintain its value and want people to want to live there and invest there. And so the linkages, you know, we really, we, there's a lot about convergence, about how all these different ideas and different services, in our case as a city, that they're all driven by how do we focus all these services and all the resources that the city has to make sure neighborhoods grow and prosper. And when they grow and prosper, the city prospers. No, then that makes sense. So, so your viewpoint is a city is a is a collection of neighborhoods. Where in a county, um, it's it's not necessarily that. Although certainly they're part of the fabric of what makes up a county. But a lot of times, it's rural areas, uh, undeveloped areas, etc. What I was I was expecting you to say. This is why we play the game on Sunday. I was expecting you to say there's not much difference because you build teams, you manage the teams, you you know supervise the teams. It's, service oriented, but you really hit on a, a very interesting, um, different aspect. So my last question is always the same one, which is, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time in St. Lucie County, Port St. Lucie area uh, for work and other things, but tell us something we don't know about Port St. Lucie that would make people say, oh, I didn't know that about Port St. Lucie. That, that's kind of cool. Uh, I like that. Yeah. So, so some factoids, Port St. Lucie, uh, starting with it's the safest large city in the state. Our crime rate is very low. 
and we're going on. You know, don't don't say that because Ken Mascara is going to get a big giant head, the sheriff of the county, and he's and you know he's already he's already got super positive numbers as it is. So let's let's we're going to scratch that from their record. But uh, go on. <laughs> so we're we're also the seventh largest city in the state of Florida. A lot of yeah, and a lot of people haven't even heard of Port St. Lucie. We were founded in 1961 at one of the General Development Corporation. Uh, land development uh, projects. They platted 80,000, a little bit less than quarter acre lots. And their job was to sell lots. Now, you know, 60 years later, we've been trying to build a great city and I think are doing a good job at it. Uh, seventh well, largest- let me, I want to put a point on that because this is this is critical because they came in and basically gridded out the whole area, sold individual lots, but did not do what we do today, which is better urban planning, better community planning with you know, urban service areas, town centers, infrastructure. And I know like the county, for example, had, you know, was working on a project. They had to buy homes to build a park because there just wasn't enough infrastructure. And for a city government, your job is to create a vision for what you want your city to look like. But you can't just you don't start Tabla Rosa, right? You've got existing infrastructure. You've got to move is that that you see that as a challenge that you guys have been facing? Since it's it's really been the city's largest challenge. We had no urban core, no industrial uh, economic development node. Originally, we've had to create that over time. Uh, you know, so we're two hundred and fifteen thousand people now. Uh, so a big city, and we there is no downtown in Port St. Lucie. There are a number of, of nodes of, of economic activity. Uh, I will say, if you haven't been to Port St. Lucie in a while, uh, you'll see right now lots of uh, commerce coming up out of the ground. And in a year, you're going to see probably 2 million more square feet up out of the ground. I mean, we've got that much, uh, actually about 3 million more square feet. So really got a lot of economic activity. Thanks to that tax abatement program, yeah. And tax abatement <laughs> program was very important to us, yeah. Yeah, so so we're, we're a great city. A lot of folks uh, used to think Port St. Lucie was a retirement community. We've mm-hmm. never been a retirement community. We're a working class community, typically two wage earners. Uh, unfortunately, many of them commute to Palm Beach County, to uh, a few even all the way down to Broward and Martin County. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're changing that that pattern really fast. We're now well, you've almost become like an exurb. You know, there's no, like you said, no core downtown, but with all this economic activity, people don't need to leave the county anymore. To go That's our goal. Down. They don't need, to, don't need to leave. There are great jobs here and you can stay if you want to. You know, I will say something else. Um, we're doing some research with the county and we looked up school numbers and I will say your schools have really turned around in the last decade. Uh, one of the highest graduation rates in the state with targeted programs for kids who are in need. And that also has got to be one of the tools in this tool chest. People want to move down there from Pennsylvania, New York, Ohio, wherever. And they want to know, do you have good schools? And you do. And, and that's do. kind of a neat yes. thing. Uh, also, uh, about the most integrated schools in Florida as well, which I, I did not know. So so I'm glad you brought that up. I was going to give you one more thing that's different about Port St. Lucie. 
So when we look at cities from, a, from the census perspective, the national census, there are only two cities in the nation that are integrated where they pass a test generally of black, Hispanic, white families all living together, not in segregated neighborhoods, not in one area of the city. So Fort Collins, Colorado and Port St. Lucie, Florida are the only two truly integrated communities in the nation. And that's something we're very proud of. And, you know, they were telling me, I was talking to the school district because we were looking at some data, and I found one piece of data to be kind of puzzling, which was 99% of the students attend a school that has more than 40% um, free reduced lunch, which is a proxy indicator many times, unfortunately, for uh, integration. And... uh, and I called the school district and I was like, well, wait a second. Is this true? Every single school? I mean, Port St. Lucie's median income is now above the state average, doing well. And, and free and reduced lunch is a proxy for, for poverty and other, other issues. And they said, absolutely true. We're well aware of it. It's something we've worked on and we want to make sure that our schools are equal and truly balanced. And we so we didn't create these carve out cities because we're so, uh, the county's so well integrated. And there are pockets of poverty and stuff, but you guys have done a very good job of keeping that. And that's because, you know, you you recognize one of the only two cities in America for kind of ringing the bell on that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty unique. You can drive down any street. And if you're looking and people are out, you will see, you know, African Americans, Hispanic, white folks, all getting along really well. I mean, we, during the uh, the Black Lives Matter times when there, were, there was tension in our com- in our country, in our sure. state, uh, Port St. Lucie had a good dialogue. It was, you know, it was a recognition that nobody's getting left out here. You know, we're all, all recognize how important our community is and every resident, every neighborhood and every resident is important. That's fantastic. Well, this explains why you've been doing this for 45 years and doing it well. Yeah, well, thank you, Steve. And uh, <laughs> you, you definitely added a tremendous amount to our referendum. You know, it's the second time I've worked with you. The sales tax referendum uh, also went well. You kept us on track uh, when it might have been, you know, think you're starting to hear some negativity, as you will in every referendum, you know, the naysayers. And it's easy to get off track and follow that. Whatever they're saying you should be doing or you shouldn't be doing, you set set a pretty easy path for us. Keep talking about the jobs you're creating. You know, know, the higher paying jobs for our community. And we didn't get off track of all those other messages. You could have gone down and it really helped us. Well, as, as I said at the earlier, you were really good at the positive feedback, and I think you just showed everybody that you really are. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, sir. Russ Blackburn, uh, the city manager of the city of Port St. Lucie. You now know that it's the seventh largest city in the state of Florida. Thank you so much for listening. This is Steve Van Cor, and this is the FCCMA podcast, the service produced by and for the Florida City and County Management Association. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Russ Blackburn. We'll see you next time.